Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, June the 28th, 2023. June uh, the 28th is Eid al-Hadha Day, uh, one of the great festivals in the Islamic religion. And perhaps to celebrate, the BBC has a couple of interesting food pieces, one about a, a delicious-looking upside-down cake uh, made of chicken and aubergine and potatoes, a Palestinian dish. Uh, a couple of days ago, the Washington Post also had a piece about a delicious-looking Palestinian fatter of bread, chicken, and yogurt given the impossibility of figuring out the Arab-Israeli, the Palestine-Israel problem. Uh, maybe food is the way to go. Certainly food is very important. My guest today has a new book out. She's one of the best-known food writers in the world. She's won the prestigious James Beard Prize three times. And she has a new book, National Dish Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home. Uh, she was born in the Soviet Union, so she's all too familiar with the politics of food. Uh, Anya von Bremsen is joining us from Queens in New York. Uh, Anya, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, Anya, uh, I, I, your book doesn't, of course, deal with uh, uh, Palestinian food or Arab food. It focuses, there is one chapter, uh, one section on Istanbul. But I wonder whether you think... Um, food is a way of figuring out these seemingly impossible political problems. If we, if we got the Arabs and the, Palestine, the, 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 the Palestinians and the Israelis around the table and they celebrated their food, might that be one way to get them to figure out how to fix their problem? I think it's certainly a very optimistic way of looking at it, that food, you know, that kind of age-old mantra that, oh, well, let's just share some hummus and let's eat borscht together and then there'll be no wars and no conflicts. Uh, in fact, you know, nothing is as simple. Uh, my book, which examines the myth of national cuisine, uh, starts in Paris, goes to Naples for pizza, goes to Japan for ramen and rice, uh, stops in Oaxaca to talk about mole and tortillas, but it ends with borscht. Uh, and I'm, as a Russian person, I grew up eating borscht in Moscow every day. Russians claim it as their own dish, but it's really a Ukrainian national dish. And the chapter shows uh, how a dish can become a symbol of conflict and symbol of resistance as well, which it has been for Ukrainians. And it ends with me, my own meditation on uh, what is a personal, intimate meaning of a national dish. You know, here I was a Russian person eating borscht, but now I don't want to be Russian anymore. So for Palestinians and Israelis, hummus is one such dish. And, you know, you'd have headlines like, oh, a dish that should unite people, actually divides them. In fact, food, because it's such an intimate, important symbol of, you know, pretty much everything, uh, can be a proxy, uh, proxy for conflicts as well as for that uh, very benevolent idea that people will uh, not fight if they eat together. Yeah, and I think um, uh, 
the Palestinians and the Israelis have been fighting about who invented not just hummus, but also falafel. Let's leave that one. Maybe that's a subject of another book. Let's focus on the new book, uh, Anya, uh, Around the World in Search of Food, History and the Meaning of Home. How did you, you went to six places, uh, Seville, uh, Seville, um, uh, Naples, uh, Paris, um, Istanbul, Oaxaca and Tokyo. How did you choose those six? I mean, there are millions of places you could have gone. Well, I wanted to look at dishes that are so iconic, they became almost transnational symbols in, in, in some instances. Um, so I definitely wanted to look at pizza and the birthplace of pizza is Naples. I wanted to look at ramen, the noodles, and that took me to Tokyo. I started the book in Paris because believe it or not, until, you know, let's say the French Revolution or the late Enlightenment, there, was no, there were no nations as we know it. The nation state is a very recent invention or construction, and now so is national cuisine. So, and the Paris in France is where that dialogue, where that conversation starts. You know, it's the first country to kind of claim cuisine as part of its own soft power. Then I went to Oaxaca, Mexico, for because it's the most indigenous state in Mexico and with the most interesting cuisine. And there I'm looking at the tortilla the corn tortilla, which is such a deep, important symbol of Mexicanness. And I'm also looking at mole, the rich stew that symbolizes Mexico's fusion identity, a fusion of uh, European and indigenous influences. And it's a kind of identity that's been evolving, the conversation around which has been evolving um, and uh, in, a, in very interesting ways. And food, again, shows us that. Istanbul is where I have my second home. I've been living there for quite some time. And there I'm looking at the multicultural legacy of the Ottoman Empire. Because before we have nations, we have these multicultural empires that have no room for nationalism, that don't have an idea of a national cuisine. There's all these different communities, as was in uh, Ottoman Istanbul, Armenians, Greeks, uh, Balkans, Jews. Uh, all cooking different foods. And I wanted to see what happens to that multicultural legacy. Yeah, I was just in, in the... uh, Istanbul um, uh, three or four weeks ago, and we ate, uh, and the food in Istanbul is incredible. Uh, we ate at a number of Ottoman restaurants, and I never really thought of what an Ottoman restaurant or Ottoman food was until I looked at your book. So it's a very interesting concept. Yes, and I look at meze, you know, the small plates, uh, which kind of each little dish, you know, the, my metaphor for that chapter is a meze tray called Chilindir Sofra, uh, to which, you know, we did a potluck. So we invited a Jewish person, an Armenian person, uh, an Albanian person. So everyone brought a dish. And, we, you know, I talk about this legacy of multiculturalism through this potluck. And I also have a chapter on Seville, Sevilla, because that's, the kind of origin of the tapas, you know, the small Spanish based tradition, also with a fascinating story. You know, I talk about jamon, the Spanish ham, and how in its day it was a symbol of Catholicism and a symbol of exclusion. Uh, for instance, Jews, you know, people were, who were suspected to be crypto Jews, uh, false converts, or crypto Muslims were given ham uh, to, to eat because, you know, in those religions, uh, pork is forbidden to see, you know, to test their true Catholic faith. So lots of fascinating background. Did you find uh, a lot of 
mobility, if you like, between these different traditions. So many of the Jews of Istanbul, of course, came from Spain in the 15th and 16th centuries. Did you find that uh, perhaps in a sense, Meze and Tapas were connected? Because Conce conceptually, they aren't entirely foreign to one another. No, Meze, <clears throat> meze is a Persian word, meaning flavor. And basically, Meze and Tapas served exactly the same purpose which is small nibbles to be served with alcohol uh, for people not to get pollutant. So in that way, yes, and there's a lot of similarity because Spain has this very rich Islamic heritage, uh, having been, you know, Al-Andalus, uh, the Islamic, uh, under Islamic rule for so long. And in fact, you know, Jewish culinary historians in Istanbul told me that when Jews were expelled from Spain, um, in 1492, and they were welcomed by Sultan Bayezid in Istanbul, they found that the cuisines were quite similar because they all had their base in the Abbasid cooking of Baghdad, you know, in like some seminal 10th century cookbooks. I mean, it's deep history, but it's so fascinating. What about Italy? You went to Naples to look for pizza or look for the origins of pizza. I wonder whether pizza is the preeminent global dish i have to admit i'm not a great fan of pizza i mean oh my it's, God. it's nice in uh, it's nice perhaps in naples but it's become this incredibly unhealthy generic food that you find everywhere well that's what happens to dishes that are that happen to be genius inventions because like what can be more incredible than a combination of flatbread wood fired flatbread tomato and cheese and that combination those ingredients first met each other in Naples around 1760s. Because remember, tomato, no tomatoes in Europe, right? It's something that arrived from, from the Americas. Um, but it oh, took I didn't know that. So the, the, the Europeans didn't have tomatoes, tomatoes, you say tomatoes, I say tomatoes, until it was brought into Europe from the Americas in the, 17th, in the 18th century? No, the 18th century is when tomatoes first became diffused. They were brought over, I think, in the 16th century. Um, wow. I think it might have been, if not Columbus himself, or maybe they were from Mexico, but, you know, it, they appeared in Seville first, which is, you so, know. So no tomatoes in, in Italy before the 1700s? No, no. And they first, you know, it was regarded as a fruit and as a botanical curiosity. And basically rich people grew it in their own garden as a kind of, you know, funny plant. Right. In, in Italian, the Italian name is Pomodoro, which means golden apple. Pomodoro. So they kind of didn't know what to do with it, but you know, eventually they figured out it was edible and it wasn't poisonous, and they started putting it on pizza and on pasta, and that happened in Naples. And so one thing about pizza that is so fascinating, and it's true of so many of the iconic dishes of the world, its function was to feed the, the poor people of Naples. Naples in the 19th century was 10 times more overcrowded, 10 times the urban density of Victorian London. And a lot of people were living on the streets, uh, semi-living on the streets because they, they were crowded in these houses called Bassi. And they needed something cheap and fairly you know, palatable that costing one soldo, one penny. And that's where pizza comes in. One Neapolitan writer calls pizza the first aid of the stomach, el pronto soccorso del stomaco. Uh, so from the being this kind of dish of the Neapolitan poor that was scorned 
by northern Italians. I mean, northern Italians had no idea what pizza was. And when they encountered it, they, they felt like you. It's like, oh. Yeah, so what you really think about it, uh, Anya, I was in, uh, last week I was in two cities I'm sure you're familiar with, Vilnius and Riga, and everywhere you go, people are out on the streets eating pizza, and I thought to myself, why are they eating pizza in Riga or Vilnius? Should I be thinking those thoughts, or is that rather snobbish? I think we want to essentialize cultures. We want to tell people in Vilnius, hey, people in Vilnius, why don't you eat uh, Lithuanian food? Excuse me. Or, you know, we want to tell Vietnamese people why, why, why are you, you know, eating a burger, you know, eat your own bami. This is a fact of globalization. I mean, people, pizza, sushi, Caesar salad, burger, you know, are these transnational dishes. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to write national dish. I wanted to have to see what happens to the idea of this like emotionally and nationally charged cuisine you know, something that with a deep connection uh, to the region or to the place. What happens to dishes like this in the era of globalization? What, how do the Neapolitans feel about pizza being so globalized? What happens to ramen, you know, the, uh, the Chinese-originated Japanese noodles in this era when... Like, yeah, every, I was wondering, we haven't talked about um, ramen. I mean, no city seems to be more of a food city, more of a celebration of food, affordable food, delicious food than, than Tokyo. It's an astonishing place. No, it's absolutely extraordinary. But again, it's the city of everythingness. You get the best Italian food in Tokyo. There's a whole pizza movement happening also in Tokyo. The way that they appropriate and indigenize other concepts is just staggering. So I wanted to see what's happening with the idea of a national cuisine. So besides ramen... I'm looking at gohan, which is cooked rice. There's something that accompanies, you know, the quintessential classic Japanese meal, rice and three side dishes. Um, and it's been elevated into this kind of edible, se- edible symbol of the Japanese self, uh, you know, just almost like a holy approach. But in fact, you know, the rice consumption is going way down as it is in Korea, as it is all over Asia, because our palates are so globalized and the Japanese like everyone else, they want, they want different kinds of globalized foods. I mean, there are some cities in the world now, Anya, which are purely globalized. One that comes to mind is Amsterdam. And when you walk in Amsterdam, you hear more English voices than you do Dutch voices. Um, Paris might be another, London. It seems to me as if Tokyo is still a national city. Is that fair? Well, it's not diverse, it's, it's a monoculture, right? There are not a lot of immigrants. So in a way, I mean, you know, we're not supposed to admire monocultures, but no. from a food point of view, do, do you, did you find in your experience in these travels in the book and in your, in, in, in your writing about food that mono, monocultural places like Tokyo are, are richer in, in, in food or is that a, another generalization? No, I think it's a generalization. I mean, I think in terms of... Uh, you know, languages and diversity, Tokyo is monocultural. In terms of its food scene, it's staggeringly globalized. I mean, I've never seen a more, a city where you can find absolutely everything. You know, there's a Korean Japanese food, there's Italian Japanese food, you know, they do French food better than the French, you know, everything that happens in the world gets copied in Tokyo and done better somehow. So that's, that's, that's really just a phenomenon. I was judging a pizza competition in Naples, well, I was doing my Naples chapter. And when I came there, 
it was full of Japanese TV, NHK, everyone was there, and most of the contestants were Japanese. And this Neapolitan, you know, the grandee of Neapolitan Pizzaiolos was, Bo, Anya, you know, what can we do? They do it much better than we do. Should we be celebrating the national uh, appropriation, if you like, of other people's culture? There was a piece a few weeks ago in the BBC about the uniqueness of English Chinese food and suggesting that it's, it doesn't in any way reflect Chinese food. The same could be said of English Indian food. But I grew up in England and I love both Anglo-Chinese and Anglo-Indian food. Is this something we should be celebrating rather than seeking a kind of purity? I think we have no choice. I think Anglo, uh, you know, uh, Anglo-Indian food, Anglo-Chinese food, American Chinese food, there's all this uh, kind of ugly histories behind them, if you will. I mean, of colonialism, obviously, right. and of migrants uh, struggling to fit into society and coming up with a cuisine uh, that might not necessarily be by choice. Yes, these are all difficult and important stories, and I try to address many of them in National Dish, how food is a reflection of so many histories that are not necessarily positive histories. At the same time, the fact of life is, is that cultures, cuisines, heritage, is a they're hybrids these days and age. Uh, this day and age, right? In in this you know, post-modern... We're all, I mean, not only food, we are hybrids. And in a sense, uh, Anya, you're a hybrid. You were born in the Soviet Union. Uh, as you said at the beginning, you barely consider yourself Russian anymore. Tell me a little bit about your story. How did you go from uh, being born in the Soviet Union to this global uh, acclaimed food writer? Well, we. I was born in the Soviet Union. In, uh, in I grew up in the 60s with very little food, uh, really pretty much behind the Iron Curtains, no travel, no access to anything. But it was a very interesting experience growing up in a fully totalitarian state. And uh, we emigrated in 1974 uh, as stateless refugees, as Jewish refugees. Um, we ended up in the States. And my first career, I was a concert pianist. And that sort of ended because I had a hand injury. So I was looking for something else to do, and I kind of fell into food writing. But in, you know, and I started working uh, at Travel and Leisure, which is a beautiful travel magazine. I wrote cookbooks that were winning awards. But somewhere deep in my mind, I always thought, you know, I am the person who tasted banana, you know, two times in my life. I've never heard of asparagus or avocado. I'm kind of, I've got this very, you know, strange profile for a food writer who just goes around the globe, you know, eating at all these fancy restaurants. So I, 10 years ago, I wrote a memoir called Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking. And it's a memoir slash political history of the Soviet Union. And it examines life in a totalitarian society. It did very well. It did very well. At the time. And you've also written um, Please to the Table, a Russian cookbook. Uh, you know, thinking about it and listening to you, the term Iron Curtain, means something different in cooking because, of course, iron might not be the thing we admire most when it comes to economics. But in terms of cooking, what, what did the Iron Curtain mean? What was there? You know, I, I remember before the wall came down, traveling massively in Eastern Europe, and the food was, in, in public, was a disaster. I remember being in Bucharest and almost starving. Uh, I remember coming to St. Petersburg or Leningrad at the time in Moscow and not eating well. Was, was the food at people's tables must have been entirely different from the food in restaurants? 
Yeah, obviously. And, and people made so much effort uh, to procure, cook food. You know, food was a symbol of so many things, of, you know, celebrations, of coming together, of kind of beating, trying to beat that shortage economy. So at homes, especially in the former republics like Georgia, Armenia, Ukraine, people ate uh, much better than they did at restaurants. But the other, the other memory, you know, that, that is relevant to national dish is um, I grew up in an empire. An empire, again, is multicultural, like the Ottoman Empire, the Soviet Empire, you know, there were 15 socialist republics that became independent states uh, in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. So we would eat an Uzbek dish, an Uzbek pilaf, or Georgian, you know, spicy chicken, or Ukrainian soup. And that memory was very strong. And when I wrote my first cookbook, Please to the Table, which was about the cuisines of the former of the Soviet Union, it came out in 1990, just as the Soviet Union was going bust. And so people were laughing. They were saying, well, you should make your book a tear-off calendar. Because like here, you know, Ukraine separated, Lithuania separated, Kazakhstan separated. So suddenly there was no, that empire was gone. Even though Putin, you know, continues even today to have these ambitions. The empire was gone. And, you know, going back to the post-Soviet spaces, I saw this former Soviet Republic become independent nations with their own nation building, with their own national consciousness. And yes, you know, kind of a revised um, and different version of what their cuisines are from what Moscow sure. dictated previously. Listen, Joanne, yeah, it seems to me that you're talking to me from Queens. Um, I, I have a, a Russian friend who always takes me to a, an incredible Uzbek restaurant in, in Queens. Maybe the Soviet Union, at least in its culinary form, still exists in the, in the New York area. Is that fair? Can you find all those old Soviet foods everywhere? Tremendously so, and much more than before. Um, there is this part of Brooklyn called Brighton Beach, uh, right on the water. And that's where Soviet emigrants would settle when they would escape be from behind the Iron Curtain and they would do Georgian food, Ukrainian food. You know, there was this kind of the Soviet melange, you know, the imperial melange of all these different dishes. Now, so many people are coming, you know, freshly from all these post-Soviet states. Uh, so many Kyrgyz people, uh, Uzbeks, you know, who are speaking Uzbek, um, Georgians. So it feels kind of newly uh, reinvigorated and Still, Russian is a lingua franca. You know, they can't communicate uh, yeah, with so one another. In, uh, in Vilnius and, and Riga, everyone speaks Russian. I don't think they're particularly keen on the Russian politics. What about Ukraine? I can't remember the name of the restaurant, but I always go to a Ukrainian restaurant on uh, 3rd Avenue. I think it's 2nd or 3rd Avenue. Visoka. Yeah, Visoka. I always go with my friend David Kirkpatrick, who lives around the corner. Tell me a little bit about Ukrainian food and that in the context, of course, of what's currently going on. And, and, and talk about how you ended the book back in Queens to uh, revisit your identity and your relationship with Russia and the Soviet Union and Ukraine. It's such a complicated story and parts of it are so tragic. But uh, Ukraine, again, as a post-Soviet state, it made this tremendous effort to establish its own statehood, its own... Uh, set of national symbols um, which were suppressed under the Soviets and which were also suppressed when Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire. Uh, so Ukraine 
there was a sense of it always being colonized by the Russians and then by the Soviets, which was more or less the same thing. And cuisine, like with any new nation, independent nation, became a very important part of national self-expression. Um, but, you know, the complication was that, there, as with empires and as with bordering regions, there always is this shared legacy, the shared cuisine. Um, so, like, how do you separate the two, right? What is Russian and what is Ukrainian, especially when you're talking about the border? But Ukraine, you know, has its dumplings uh, called vareniki, you know, this incredible dinner rolls called pampushki. Ukrainian cuisine is extremely regional, so we can't really talk about one Ukrainian uh, dish. But the really symbolic dish that I ended chap- the uh, national dish book with is borscht, the beet soup, um, and how... During the empire, you know, under the Soviets, it was part of uh, just a sh- that shared heritage. You know, my mom, who is uh, born in Ukraine in Odessa, but is sort of culturally Russian-speaking um, American Jew by now, um, she cooked borscht all her life. All our grandmothers, and, and whether it was in Kazakhstan or in uh, Lithuania, where, you know, they also have a borscht culture, cool borscht. So how do you separate it, right? You know, so but for Ukraine, it becomes a symbol of resistance because Russians are sort of, you know, even when the invasion of 2014 happened of Eastern Ukraine, they say, well, it's our dish. We claim to it. You know, we want, we want to take it away from Ukrainians. And so finally, borscht gets the UNESCO uh, heritage, intangible heritage status, um, you know, I think almost one year after the war, and it was a cause for great celebration to Ukrainian, uh, for Ukraine. And in the last chapter, I look at how national identities can change almost overnight, because I kind of consider myself at least partly Russian. Now I want nothing to do with it, and I reconsidered my own relationship to the soup that I eat every day, um, and it was it was a meditation on our food reflects who we are and where we come from in ways that are not always comforting and easy, but that's how it is. And the complexity is what makes it so rich and interesting. Like the food itself. Did you get into food politics? Um, We've done a number of shows on traditional farming, what you should and shouldn't eat, uh, supermarkets. Did that play out in your in your narrative of, of national dish, of how people think about farming and this distinction, you, you went to cities rather than the countryside, but these are obviously still very profound divisions. I talk about it a little bit in the Mexico, in the Mexico chapter. I talk about maize, the traditional maize farming in these indigenous intercropped plots called milpa, which is how indigenous agriculture was practiced for millennium. You know, milpa, milpa is where you grow, you know, you grow beans together with squash, uh, together with maize, i.e. corn, um, and the roots reinforce each other. And I talk about what happened, you know, under the assault of commercial agriculture, industrial agriculture in the north of the country, and also what happened after NAFTA uh, with the GMO contamination of Mexican maize and the scare around it, which produced this grassroots celebration of maize as, as a national treasure and the tortilla as a national treasure. Uh, so, yeah, I spoke, I spent a great deal of time with Mexican corn farmers talking about all sorts of issues. Yeah, I don't know how much longer I can do this, and yeah, I'm getting really, really hungry. So finally, um, it's, it's, it's 
late breakfast here. It's lunchtime on the East Coast. It's dinner in Europe. It's probably early breakfast in Asia. Somewhere, some, somewhere someone's eating a dinner or lunch or breakfast or something. And you're finally... Um, I wonder, you've been in this business a while. As you said, you, you began as a, a writer, a, a sort of a memoirist on Soviet food. Are you surprised or perhaps concerned about the way in which, I think especially amongst young people, food has become almost a cult. You know, we talk about foodies, people who live and die for food, who travel around the world looking for the next big restaurant. There was that satiric movie, uh, about the cult of expensive restaurants. The menu, yeah, which was yeah. so familiar to me because I've been to all those restaurants. Yeah, uh, my, my son, uh, who lives in Queens up the road from you, is a, is, has been working in restaurants. I, he, he was particularly amused by that. Uh, Big-time chefs are celebrities. Now they're getting involved in all the scandals of, of Hollywood stars. What's your sense of that? Why has food become uh, almost a form of entertainment, uh, as, as big as in its own way as the movie industry or the music business, bigger probably than the book business. No, when I started writing about food in the 90s, I would tell, you know, some glamorous people, they would ask me, what do you do? And I'd say, oh, I write about food. And they looked at me like I, would, I had Ebola virus. And I was like, well, what, what do you do? You know, because everyone wanted to be an artist or a writer. And now it's like, oh, wow, I want your job. That's so exciting. I think the food is so Instagrammable. I mean, just think uh, of a yeah. close-up. I think that has a lot to do with it, with the cooking shows, um, food. I like that. Uh, that. That can be your title of your next book, uh, Anya. Food is Instagrammable. Exactly. But, you know, what I wanted to do in National Dish, just to close the discussion, is to show how food is your getaway, uh, your door into so many other issues, political, historical, mm. cultural. So don't just, you know, munch, munch, yum, yum the plate. Just, you know, stop to think about what this pizza means or what this ramen means or what this tortilla that you're eating. And it's just this whole other fascinating world out there that I hope uh, the book will help people discover.